Welcome to The Conversation, I'm your host, Anna Kasparian. And joining us today is the legendary Noam Chomsky. He's an American linguist, philosopher, cognitive scientist, historian, social critic, and political activist. But if you're a TYT viewer or you're familiar with our show, I'm sure that Chomsky needs absolutely no introduction. Noam Chomsky, thank you so much for joining us on TYT. Very glad to be with you. I want to get right to the topics that I've been dying to ask you about, and I don't want to waste any time. Starting with what happened last night with the State of the Union address. There was one moment at the very end where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi took Donald Trump's speech and she ripped it up, knowing full well that she would be on camera and that it would get quite a bit of media attention. It certainly did get a bit of media attention and she is being applauded as you know part of the resistance to Donald Trump. However, critics such as myself have been dragged through the mud because of the fact that I've criticized Pelosi for doing that. Not because I have any type of love or admiration for Donald Trump, but because I see that as political theater that stands as a substitute for real resistance or political activism to represent the people. I wanted to get your thoughts on it though. I didn't watch it, so I've only read the report, but I basically agree with you. I think there are much more significant ways of responding than tearing something up. Why is it that when it comes to true political activism that represents the working people of this country, be it Occupy Wall Street or any type of political uprising, that tends to get a very different reaction in the media. But when it comes to symbolic gestures like ripping up a speech or maybe clapping in a sarcastic manner during the State of the Union, that gets much more positive reaction from the press. And I know that this is all really part of what you have written about extensively, manufacturing consent. But is this something that do you think? Do you think Americans are waking up to it, or is this something that's really going to keep people complacent? I think it's split. Some wake up to it. Some accept it. Uh, the it's, it's, it's understandable that uh, substantive issues are evaded. They're rather toxic. So, for example, if you bring up the the things that were not discussed in the the most important aspect of the speeches, as often as the case, what was not discussed. So, for example, uh, there was nothing in the speech about how Donald Trump is leading the world towards uh, destruction of the uh, possibilities for organized uh, human life in the near future by his uh, uh, disgraceful and uh, destructive climate policies. There was nothing in the speech about how he's tearing the last shreds of the arms control regime to shreds, causing great dangers to the world and ourselves and other things. But the media aren't going to focus on that because those cut, if you pursue those issues, they cut right to the part of the nature of our institutions uh, and uh, uh, lead to serious challenges of those institutions and uh, calls to uh, significantly change them. That's not something the media want to go into. It's much easier to divert attention to uh, whether it's right or wrong to uh, tear up a couple of pieces of paper on television. You know, one of the 
harsh realizations that I've come to, and I'm embarrassed to say this was recent, is that the media and journalism doesn't really carry out what I was taught it was supposed to carry out. You know, it's not a check on power in the United States. In fact, I see media at this point as an extension of political campaigns or specific political parties. And that is, of course, something that you do write about extensively and you talk about extensively in manufacturing consent. But my question to you is, do journalists know, are they doing this with these nefarious intentions? Or is this something that's being done unwittingly? Are they being chosen in these positions at various media outlets? Because of the fact that they already have a certain type of ideology, or do they know? Are they aware that they're engaging in nefarious actions? I suppose journalists who understand exactly what the constraints are, of how they have to change what they're doing, how they can sometimes sneak something in, maybe in the last paragraph of a long story that will lead people to a different direction. But I suspect for most, it's just uh, something that Orwell described. Uh, an animal farm, which not too many people have read because it wasn't published, it was withheld, came out later. But he points out that in a free societies generally, that unpopular ideas can be suppressed without the use of force. And one of the mechanisms, he says, is just a deep immersion into the dominant culture. You have a good education with the right schools, you just have it built into you that there are certain things it wouldn't do to say. So, for example, if you're a, a journalist assigned writing about, say, what happened a couple of days ago, a huge new discovery of oil petroleum reserves off the coast of South America, Guyana, huge bonanza for ExxonMobil. Your task is to write about that and what a bonanza and how there are other fields nearby which will maximize the radically increase the use of fossil fuels. Our job is not to point out that uh, the, these discoveries accelerate uh, the risk to for the human species and numerous others, and that this is uh, following from a fundamental institutional capitalist quasi-market system. You're supposed to make profit, so ExxonMobil is doing its job. It's find more ways to destroy human life in order to fill uh, uh, overstuffed pockets with more dollars. That's the institutional imperative. Write that. In fact, you're not supposed to think it. You're supposed to keep to what's uh, called objectivity, to the framework that's presented to you by institutional power structures. Now, is that? Uh, you can ask the individual to report deal with the situation, but that's very common standard. Professor Chomsky, I wanted to get your thoughts on the impeachment investigation. Today, the Senate will vote to inevitably acquit Donald Trump. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on whether this was an effort that was worth pursuing for the Democrats. It was 
completely obvious from the beginning that the impeachment proceedings would be a significant gift to Donald Trump, which is exactly the way they turned out. From the first moment, it was plain that uh, this is total force. Uh, I'm sure you uh, watched the performance where uh, uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts uh, tried to keep a straight face while he was swearing in the senators, uh, each of whom pledged that uh, no partisan uh, issue would possibly influence their judgment and behavior. And of course, as everyone knew what happened, they immediately proceeded to violate the oath by acting completely along partisan lines. Uh, the, uh, uh, the main issue that the uh, impeachment focused on was whether Donald Trump had used presidential powers uh, in an illegal way to uh, undermine uh, a leading figure in the Democratic Party. Uh, okay, that's wrong. But is that the worst crime you can think of Donald Trump having uh, committed? In fact, uh, it's rather reminiscent of Watergate. Uh, what was Nick, Richard Nixon's crime? Uh, there were efforts by uh, uh, Robert Ryan and a couple of other senators to introduce Nixon's major crimes, and they were huge. Uh, into like, the bombing of Cambodia, into the impeachment proceedings, but they were knocked out. And the only thing that was left was uh, that uh, uh, Nixon had uh, had a bunch of thugs break into the Democratic Party headquarters. Uh, what, what does this suggest? It suggests, and I'll leave it to you to figure it out, but what it does indicate is that the major issues were off the agenda, it was obvious from the start that the Republicans who are completely in Trump's pocket would vote to acquit no matter what the facts are and that he would then triumphantly declare a victory. So it's a, it's a gift to Donald Trump and a farcical proceeding which uh, can't possibly be taken seriously. Now why the Democrats decided to do that, uh, I have no idea. The outcome, how it would turn out, was uh, never seriously in doubt. Well, you just touched on something that's been incredibly frustrating for anyone who's been paying close attention to this impeachment investigation, hoping that it would be uh, something that would maybe point to Donald Trump's possible financial ties or financial crimes uh, along with foreign governments or his war crimes. Those were issues that weren't brought up. And so while one can only speculate as to why, I, I wanna share my speculation with you and get your thoughts because, and again, this is something that I think a lot of progressives in the media get criticized for pointing out. I don't believe that there's a significant difference between the corporate Republicans or the corporate Democrats. I think that when it comes to war crimes, when it comes to possible financial crimes, when it comes to corruption, when it comes to undermining our democratic process, both corporate Democrats and Republicans are very much in agreement. Do you think that that's the possibility behind why Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the Democrats decided to not bring up Donald Trump's possible financial crimes? Personally, 
I don't doubt that uh, Donald Trump has committed many personal financial crimes, but that is so low on the ranking of his crimes that I don't really think it matters. Mm -hmm. But let's take a close look at it. Here is a man who has torn to shreds uh, the major international treaties. Uh, The Paris negotiations are very weak, but at least there's something. Mm -hmm. At least other countries are trying to do something, sometimes not insignificant, sometimes just hand-waving, to try to deal with a crisis that is going to destroy organized human life within a few generations. That's not a minor fact. Right. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, the threat of nuclear war is very serious. Uh, one of the things that's constrained it is that there have been arms control agreements, like, for example, the uh, Reagan-Gorbachev uh, INF uh, Treaty, which uh, uh, eliminated uh, short-range uh, nuclear weapons in Europe, which are extremely destabilizing. Okay, Trump tore it up. And not only that, uh, brazenly, right after dismantling the treaty last August, immediately uh, launched a test of a missile which violates the treaty. Uh, just to plead with the Russians, uh, please develop weapons to destroy us. Uh, how serious is all of this? Well, take a look at. Uh, what is probably the most reasonable general assessment of world affairs that we have, the uh, doomsday clock of the uh, bulletin of atomic scientists. Uh, As I'm sure you know, a couple of weeks ago, they gave their annual assessment, and it broke the record since 1947. They assessed the current situation as the most dangerous in the world since the first setting of the doomsday clock. 100 seconds to midnight. Uh, Did any of this come up in the hearings? I mean, here's a person who is acting uh, virtually alone in the world scene uh, with a wrecking ball that's uh, devastating uh, the hopes for a decent survival for human beings. Young young people seem to understand this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very striking moment at the uh, meeting of the People called the masters of the universe, the Davos meetings a couple of weeks ago. The first day was utterly dramatic. First, the most powerful person in the world uh, gave a speech uh, extolling his own magnificence and saying on the side that we should not be alarmists about uh, the climate, we should not uh, be doomsayers and so on. Well, he's going on to destroy and wrecking it in the lead in the world. And it was followed by a 17-year-old girl, Greta Thunberg, who gave a quiet, factual lecture to the associated uh, great men, uh, showing how a responsible adult would act in the current world. Astonishing spectacle, quite different from the impeachment proceedings which were off on some side issues uh, where the outcome was certain and the structure was farcical from the beginning. Well, you just don't say that kind of thing. It's uh, not proper, but it's significant. On the other hand, about the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, 
Yes, there are differences. The Republicans, both parties, have drifted to the right in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, roughly the neoliberal period. Uh, today's what you call the establishment general, uh, Democrats, Clinton-style new Democrats. They're basically what used to be called moderate Republicans. The Republicans have just gone off the spectrum. They're not acting like a parliamentary party anymore. I think this has been pointed out by some of the political analysts, uh, Norman Ornstein, Thomas Mann, just call them a radical insurgency, which has abandoned parliamentary politics. If you look at international rankings of parties from what's called left to right, meaning mostly center to far right, uh, the Republicans are ranked with the fringe parties, the the parties with neo-fascist roots uh, in the international scene, way off to the right. Democrats are ranked basically centrist. Uh, Well, those differences... Uh, may not be huge, but they are significant. In a system with extraordinary power, uh, small differences can translate into huge outcomes. So Mm -hmm. again, on the issues that I mentioned, the crucial issues like uh, environmental catastrophe, uh, nuclear war, there are differences, significant ones. Uh, uh, Whatever you think about Obama and Clinton, they would never have been doing what uh, Trump has been doing to wreck the hope for uh, some kind of uh, mitigation of the coming environmental catastrophe. These are not small points. These are existential issues. There is a little bit of a division among the left in America, and that division has to do with the right process to reform uh, our government. On one hand, you have individuals who believe that you can really reform the Democratic Party from within uh, in order to uh, create a party that's much more representative of the working class. And then on the other hand, you have individuals who think that the establishment really needs a shakeup. You need to either create a third party or just blow up the entire uh, system and, and start from scratch. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. What is the most, in your mind, uh, uh, I guess, what is the best way to move forward? Because. I, I, I certainly fall under this category of leftists who feel as though we don't really have a party that represents our best interests, especially when you consider the corruption that takes place, the legalized bribery that takes place in this country. A lot of the Democratic donors have the you know same interests that Republicans do. And so the same people are funding Democrats and Republicans, and they're essentially pushing for very similar things in domestic policy especially when it comes to the financial sector. So what is the best way to move forward to kind of change this system? Do you kind of start from scratch or can you really reform it from within? Well, you can't start with scratch. That's just not an option. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's suicide. You have to deal with the world as it exists, not as you'd like it to exist. Uh, And uh, I don't really, I think the two alternatives that you sketch should be regarded as complementary, not competing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a short-term problem. What lever do you push on uh, in November of this year? 
simple question. What you do is pick the one that's least damaging. Okay, after having spent five minutes figuring that out, you now go back to work trying to develop the basis for much more substantial changes uh, to develop popular movements, which will be active, engaged on real issues, uh, never stopping, not restricting themselves to the quadrennial uh, extravaganza, uh, but working all the time on the ground, uh, communities, uh, education, organizing, activism to create the larger scale changes that are needed. But these are not alternatives. We shouldn't be trapped by the, basically, the, the doctrinal system which, uh, uh, which identifies politics as showing up every couple of years to push a button to select one or another uh, candidate picked by the powerful. Yes, that choice makes a difference, makes a significant difference uh, for reasons I mentioned. But once you've made that choice, which would take you a couple of minutes to figure out, you go back to the major work. In fact, uh, mm. no secret that the mainstream establishment, the democratic uh, establishment, the media, are very concerned that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders might uh, gain the nomination. They're doing everything possible to undermine it. Uh, why? I don't think it's because of his policies. The fact of the matter is his policies are an expansion of the New Deal. I don't think they would have surprised uh, Dwight Eisenhower very much, the last conservative president. Uh, but uh, what really is bothersome is that he's breaking with the condition that uh, the public are supposed to be occasional participants whose role in the political system is to pick one or another of the dominant class. He's breaking with that. He organized a mass popular movement, inspired it. He's now doing lots of things. Uh, the, uh, if you look back at what's called liberal democratic theory, no time to go into it, but if you look back, at, mm -hmm. uh, it essentially uh, asserts that the role of the public is to be spectators not participants. And participation is limited to the responsible men, the serious guys. The public just uh, chooses among them every once in a while then goes back to its own business. Well, Sanders uh, here, uh, Corbyn in England, are uh, breaking with that. And that's a real threat to, uh, to uh, the establishment system. So naturally, they're bitterly opposed. But that's the right thing. And that's not an alternative to voting against Trump in the next election. That's something that must be done if we hope at least to leave some breathing space to achieve the other goals. So yes, you do that, but it's not the center of your... I think that you're absolutely right. I think the biggest threat that Bernie Sanders, you know, presents to our current structure is that he doesn't just want to redistribute wealth, he wants to redistribute power. He wants to empower the electorate to get involved and demand more. I mean, that's the way that America was able to have labor unions. It wasn't because they were gifted with labor unions, it's because workers fought and demanded more and they they decided to strike. and. There's a lot of power in that, and I think that Bernie Sanders really does remind Americans that they 
could have that power if they do organize and they get active. But since we're speaking about Bernie Sanders, I have to follow up on something that you had said in a previous interview. You were asked about the chances of Bernie Sanders winning the Democratic nomination. And your view, your outlook was quite pessimistic. So I just wanna show our audience what your answer was and then follow up with you on what you think today. Let's take a quick look. If he gets the nomination, the attacks will be wild. We'll get the whole Republican propaganda machine going after this uh, Jewish uh, atheist, uh, you know, wants to kill all the whites and on and on. You know. Chances he can be elected are pretty small. But if he does get elected, miracle, he won't have Congress. How are you going to win Congress? The Congress is the U.S. Electoral system is structurally constructed so that the uh, reactionary elements have an overwhelming advantage. So you describe the chances of Bernie Sanders winning the election as a miracle. Uh, but if it does happen, there are structural issues in place that would prevent him from carrying out his agenda. Now, this is an issue that's been brought up by everyone, regardless of political ideology. And so, you know, Bernie Sanders' answer to that has always been, well, it's about the people. It's about empowering the electorate so they demand more, so they fight. They go to the states where these members of Congress deny the policies that they that the people want. And we can accomplish things if we mobilize and organize. Now, I have two questions for you. Number one, do you still believe that it would be a miracle for Bernie Sanders to get elected? I think miracle may be too strong, but it would be a very difficult task. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, uh, the, the the liberal media attacks on Sanders are already uh, shocking. There's one in the Washington Post just a couple of days ago that amazed me. Once the Republicans get started, it'll be even worse. Now, it might be with enough possible. See, there's another part of that interview which you didn't play, which said that uh, the great advantage that Bernie Sanders has mm -hmm. is that he does have uh, a popular base, which he's inspired, which is active, which is mobilized. And this goes back to your point a minute ago about uh, the great achievements of the struggles of the labor movement. Mm -hmm. They were indeed significant. There wouldn't have been a new deal if it hadn't been for CIO organizing uh, sit-down strikes and so on. But that's one part of the story. The other part of the story was that there was a moderately sympathetic administration. Uh, labor right. historian uh, Eric Loomis, has, who's written a lot about, very interestingly, about strikes and labor activism and their achievement, it points out that uh, if you look at the whole record, the achievements of labor struggles have always been in the case when there was at least a mildly sympathetic, responsive power system. Then they could achieve something. Otherwise, they're crushed. So you need both. Uh, it's uh, with uh, Bernie Sanders in office, uh, there would be a sympathetic administration, uh, even if he didn't have Congress uh, in his hands. And at that point, if uh, serious uh, popular struggles, labor struggles, and women's struggles, and others did develop. 
that there would be a, a, a positive supportive reaction and that amalgam can lead to change. But that gets back to what we we're talking about before. There is a decision to be made on in November or in the primaries. Mm-hmm. And the deci- I think the decision's a simple one. Shouldn't take a lot of attention. Shouldn't, uh, uh, it's pretty obvious what it should be. So make it. And then go back to work developing the, uh, the uh, popular struggle that will have to be the major part of this effort to institute major change. As I understand Sanders, he's pretty much what he's saying. I think that one of the biggest misconceptions is that if you just elect the right president to represent you, that would lead to the change that the people need. But you need that sympathetic person in the White House. And then that's when the struggle really begins. That's when you need to mobilize and get politically active and demand more in order to really change the system so it benefits the working class as opposed to those at the very top. Professor Chomsky, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I wish you had more time. I could speak with you for hours about this. You're such a fascinating person. And I thank you for your contribution to my education, to journalism, and more importantly, to the discourse in politics. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, thank you for watching the conversation. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. I know I definitely did. And if you want to support independent media outlets like the Young Turks to hear more conversations like this, please support us, keep us independent. You can join and become a member by going to tyt.com slash join. Thank you again, we'll see you soon.